0: Workplace pension provision is a bit of a work in progress. It seems a bit like trying to fill a leaky bucket using a small cup, and it exists in a constant state of policy reform. In this episode, I'm joined by Philip Brown of the People's Pension and Nathan Long of Hargreaves Lansdowne to examine recent announcements from the DWP, the FCA, and the Pensions Regulator. We talk about value for money, member engagement, small pots, decumulation, CDC, and the self-employed. I hope you enjoy it. Philip, Nathan, welcome
1: to the podcast.
0: Thanks for inviting us. I feel like we've we've got to just start with the budget because it's still fresh in our memories and because there's stuff that came out of that. So I think you know, we could spend the whole podcast just talking about tax changes, but I guess what I'm I'm interested to hear from you both just as a kind of kickoff is whether you think the changes that have been announced in the budget on the lifetime allowance in particular, but also the annual allowance, are going to have to lead to more tax changes on pensions, whether that's kicked off something new as a result.
1: So I'd be interested in your thoughts around that. So it's a really interesting one, Tom. And I think, I think the fact that Rachel Reeves announced the very next day that she'd unwind it if Labour come to power in the next election, that that kind of answers the question that this is, it, it started a debate on, on what is right or wrong for pensions and, and the, the decades of tinkering that we're all very familiar with. I think what we need is a, a strategic assessment of what we want as a longer-term value for pensions before we start making more changes. Because at the moment, I'm, I'm not sure that's entirely clear to all of us within the industry, let alone the poor people that get served by the industry actually having to invest in these products that, that have insane complexity around some
2: issues on them. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I, I guess sort of my reflection looking at that now is – We've kind of got a consensus around accumulation in pensions. Now, I appreciate there's still sort of debates around levels of auto-enrolment saving and whatnot, but we've got auto-enrolment as a policy that automatically joins people through the mechanism of their employer, built on cross-party consensus. I just think we need to start thinking about how we can drive that cross-party consensus around retirement so that when consumers get to the point of needing to leaving work and starting to phased down and using their pensions to provide for themselves, that they don't feel like the rug's being pulled out from under them and that things are constantly changing. So above all else, what we really want is simplicity and confidence to save and invest. That's kind of what we're after. So, I mean, I like the lifetime allowance change, but obviously, as soon as then you get, say, Labour saying, well, we're going to reverse it, that's just kind of destroying the whole benefit of it, which is... It makes things simpler if you don't have a lifetime allowance. And actually, you talked about lifetime allowance and annual allowance there, Tom, but actually the money per- purchase annual allowance, I think, is a is a big change because what we've got is sort of over 300,000 people every year accessing an plus payment under the age of 65. So if you take that as a proxy for them still working, you definitely have that risk that people inadvertently sort of trigger their the MPAA, without really knowing, particularly when a lot of pension schemes don't have the option to go into drawdown. So I think for me, that's kind of a nice hygiene factor. That reversal is a really positive step. Lifetime allowance, agree in principle with the change, but it does kind of open up that can of worms around what we actually think is a long term consensus around decumulation.
0: Just staying with that for a second, Nathan. You, I mean, you and I have talked before about you know, what what is the point of tax relief, so. I think it's still not clear you know, whether this government or, or, or a Labour government would regard the tax relief as, as a top-up, as a reward for saving, as something to add to people's savings or an incentive to get people to save in the first place. And I think that's quite an important starting point. Of all
2: that. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with you on that. The For me, the amount of money spent on tax relief should be used to incentivise people to save at the right level. At the moment, I don't think that's necessarily the case. But... Trying to drive a change that refocuses the energy of that tax relief spend is quite quite contentious. So again, it's quite a, a thorny issue when you get into looking at that from a you know from that kind of lens of what we actually spending this money for, what's the purpose of?
0: It. So look, you both you know you talked a bit about auto enrollment now and Philip the people's pension, B and as was, people's partnership now, my apologies, which includes the people's pension. You know, That's a big industry. Is it the oldest master trust?
1: Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as the oldest master trust. It's it's one of the biggest private ones. We're obviously run on a, a not-for-profit basis, so we're quite different to, to most of the other master trusts. But I think just to, to so echo got, some of what Nathan was saying, that the kind of strategic plan I was thinking about for for UK pensions definitely includes what happens in retirement. And we've got to find ways of actually transitioning people into retirement that is just less complex than we do today. And assuming that everyone inside auto enrollment should probably need an advice mechanism is, is, yeah. is one thing that I, I couldn't kind of subscribe to. Cause I think they just need help in actually how they get the money back out of the pension. And a big part of that is reminding them that a pension is for a long-term income because yeah. the one thing that freedoms introduced was this, I'm going to call it a myth that your pension's a bank account and you can choose to use it how you want throughout your retirement. Because there's clearly not enough assets in most pensions to use it how you want.
0: Okay, hold that thought. We're going to come back to that because I want to talk a bit about the, the transition to decumulation further on. So I'm just interested in the fact that you're both very different businesses, Master Trust versus Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is kind of contract based looking after individual customers, but you're both delivering industrial scale solutions in the marketplace through somewhat different mechanisms. And to be fair to Nathan, Harveys also does workplace pensions, but under contract-based schemes, and and serving quite a different market, I think, compared to the People's Partnership. But look, you know, you, Nathan, you mentioned about the consensus around auto enrolment. It's been a good start, but it definitely hasn't fixed the problem yet. And it's interesting that with those three big flagship reforms of the twenty tens, you know, we had auto enrolment, we had reform of the state pension, then we had pension freedom, and yet here we are, we're still. Massive problems. Recent DWP research around adequacy shows we've not actually significantly shifted the dial with all those reforms. There's still a big problem coming down the tracks. We had a lot come out of the DWP in the last weeks. And and I want to start with their value for money framework, because that's quite a centerpiece sort of initiative from the DWP to try and improve the quality of workplace pension provision. So three things they've looked at are costs and charges, investment returns and service. So I'm going to start with you, Philip. I mean, do you think that's going to achieve what they're setting out to achieve? Do you think that's a good set of proposals they've come out with there?
1: So, so for, from the perspective of we absolutely need some way of comparing one scheme with another scheme, the framework is a really good start. You know, we, we do need something that, that allows people, and I would urge the government and regulators to actually focus on Something that was consumer facing as well to allow them to make kind of judgments based on value when they're moving money around rather than based on adverts or, or based on something that John told them down the pub. They, they actually need a way of doing this. So, so I agree this is the right direction of travel. I think there's some fundamental challenges built into how they've designed some of those metrics. By way of example, the way they're measuring sort of service and engagement would really favour schemes where there's a degree of intermediation or higher contribution rates? Obviously in auto enrollment we deal with a whole range of of different income levels and a whole range of different contribution levels because of that. We, we describe ourselves as a as a universal provider so we we don't we don't have a limit to what's st- what size of employer can join us or how many members they have to have. We literally take anyone. And because of that, we have a degree of low earners sat in the book and actually measuring them the same way as as intermediated business doesn't feel fair because the whole system is designed around inertia and there's safeguards built into it in in the default fund mechanism, in the way trustees have a fiduciary duty. And and I think we, we need to make sure that we're recognizing all of that and we should be looking to measure the value that a scheme adds rather than absolute cost versus contribution coming
2: in. Nathan? So, I mean, look, I feel like i are probably going to disagree on this point because whilst clearly the investment returns are incredibly important, the costs are incredibly important within a pension, so too are levels of engagement. And actually, one of the, the line in the, the entire piece of work that struck me as the, the most important, and it's partly because it's something that we've been passionate about for a long time, there was a, a line that said, the key point to measure and address is not the communications in themselves, but whether or not they drive improved member outcomes. So it's, it's that kind of acknowledgement that really it doesn't matter whether you've got loads of emails going out, you've got some really snazzy tools on your website. That is almost irrelevant. What matters is can you drive decision making amongst the members that's going to improve their financial future So I think where they are on service, I think they kind of want to do more, but it's too hard to do at the moment. So I think there's kind of a missed opportunity right now to start to demand the data flow from employers to schemes to be able to to be able to analyze this value add. I think that might come in the fullness of time. We are kind of at a starting point here. But you have to understand whether schemes are able to help people increase contributions, because that fundamentally is a massive benefit. And I think again, when you start to think through what, what we really need to care about is the end position. So with investments, for example, there's this big focus on the risk-adjusted return and, and you know measuring the investment returns relative to the risk, which obviously makes sense, but actually what really matters. What the only game in town really for a member is what's how big can their pot be when they get to retirement? That's really what matters from the outcome perspective. So what we really need to worry about is okay if you have a slightly more volatile fund, that could be absolutely fine as long as you've not got high high rates of people leaving the scheme because they've completely freaked out about it. So I think again it's just there's a risk that in trying to measure things you drive every, everything to look very samey. I think the investment returns, that the investment strategies especially could end up sort of gravitating that way. And it's very, very interesting in light of work done on productive finance and whether there's opportunity to add interesting other assets into default strategies because those are not going to perform in the same way as passive investments within a default strategy. And as a result, it will be interesting to see whether that impacts the appetite of Trustees and decision makers as to whether they want to adopt the liquids into their default strategy.
1: Nathan, we can absolutely agree on that. I think if you if you start having a liquid assets in a portfolio and you measure that over relatively short periods of time, that's just going to make them look bad. So you, you've got to think hard about how all these different policy levers interact with each other. I, I think so. So we can agree on on what's yeah. most important to an individual is is the end outcome. But there's, there's a socioeconomic dimension to that and and the FCA financial lives surveys basically show the most engaged people are middle-aged white guys. We need that engagement to spread much wider and deeper than that and'm I'm, I'm not sure anyone's found the key to doing that yet. so it, it's got to start crossing some of the boundaries we have around gender pensions gap and some of the things around how how different ethnic minorities actually interact in different ways with pensions and that, that's the bit the where I think the, the devil's in the detail here. The end outcome is absolutely what we should be working to, but there's the socio economic factors as to why people will or won't engage in that, that that I don't think we've really worked through yet.
2: I agree with you and I think actually what the, the opportunity here is that this piece of work creates the conditions, creates the environment for schemes to compete on their ability to engage, on their ability to deliver information so that you don't have pockets of the, of the nation just not engaging. Because ultimately, whether we like it or not, people do have to engage with their financial future, otherwise they will not have enough when they get there. I think that's where, for me, because the service element isn't quite as developed as the other areas, and I understand why, because it's a harder one to crack, That's the bit where the impact of this probably isn't going to be quite as great. And I think also there's other things that come into this, right? We're going to have a review of the advice guidance boundary, which definitely, if that's as aspirational as we hope it is, could end up really helping pension schemes to better to speak to their members, to help them improve their decision making. So there's there's opportunity here all over the shop. I think it's just at the moment, it seems like a first step. But you're right how we engage people across all of society to make smarter decisions is the, is the prize here.
0: Okay, interesting. So the FCA gave a speech only this week talking about the holistic review of the advice guidance boundary. And I was struck reading that. You know, we've had the retail distribution review. We had the financial advice market review. At what point do they actually shift the dial on this? You know, And I know Hargreaves have lobbied pretty hard around this area, but I just I did feel a bit weary Reading that of like really we're still we're still having essentially the same conversations ten years down the line so so I agree with you Nathan and I think I think it's really interesting that you're both agreeing around the engagement issue though, though again your businesses come at it from very different angles I was struck by the DWP research they put out at the same time some qualitative research around people's understanding of an engagement with pensions um, and their top line finding was that attitudes to pensions were characterised by detachment fear, and complacency, which acted as barriers to engagement. So it sounds like
1: we've still got some work to do here. Well, well, we still we still run a language barrier with pensions, right? And I know you've heard me say this, Tom, probably over the last 10 years, that we still haven't found the way of framing the pension in a way that, that someone thinks, yes, this is mine. And that's not true of all parts of the market. That's, that's a particular challenge in, in the workplace environment where the employer's choosing the scheme for you. But but we've really got to get somewhere where we use really simple language and, and we think much harder in a regulatory sense about why we send things to people. I would love the FCA at the point we start getting towards a, a visible to the consumer dashboard to say, hang on a minute, we've got all these regulations and all these different documents we send out. Let's start with a blank page. Now we have a dashboard. What should we be doing and how should we be doing it to better engage people? rather than than sending out very specific documents that meet very specific regulatory standards
2: absolutely spot on and that for me is this whole point around the FCA being able to create the conditions for firms to compete on that information delivery that engagement their their consultation that sorry their discussion paper on disclosures is fantastic the way that they're starting to think through some of these issues, I think, is absolutely in the, in the right area. And when we speak to government, when we speak to regulators about better personalization, it's that point that you just made there is absolutely key. It's about how can we send you less information because we have the confidence that we don't have to send you that information because it's not going to be relevant and we can focus in on the stuff that you should really Really be thinking about because they're the kind of most important things right now that's how you really shift the dial because at the moment and we run this as an ongoing sort of piece of surveying work of the nation as a whole, only three in ten people consistently think that their workplace pension is invested in the stock market so quite frankly we're we are coming at this from a position of people not really knowing. What's going on with their with their plan? Do the FCA and the pensions regulator work effectively together? So I, th- I think that that's an improving
1: picture. You also need to look at this through the lens of is it, is it desirable or undesirable to have two regulators? I'm not convinced that having two regulators is bad. It does allow a degree of regulatory arbitrage on occasions. But I wonder whether we should rethink how those regulators are defined I think if you had one regulator that was responsible for the manufacture of pensions, and then the other one, probably the FCA, being responsible for kind of advice, distribution, and, and and all of that good stuff, you'd actually remove some of the the kind of available arbitrage and just focus it in on pensions have to be built to to certain standards and then distributed to certain standards, and you've got regulators that that deal with those two aspects rather than mixing that all together. Because I, I, I can only agree with the statement you made earlier. And I'll add to the list you listed off of consumer duty coming down the line. We're a few months away from that now. I think we we seem to flip-flop between trying to manage advice risk and regulate advice and manage product risk and regulate products. And we move backwards and forwards between the two. And we've been doing that since the FSA, actually probably since the PIA, and probably since Lautro. I'm now really showing my age.
2: I think the only thing I'd add to those comments is just that, for me, the consumer duty is the direction of travel. It's a really positive change from the FCA. It's going to take some time to bed in. Of course it is. It is a big change. We noticed when the first iterations of this value for money work came out, consumer duty wasn't really being referenced in the uh, papers, and now it is being referenced in the papers. So I think there is that... uh, I think, as Phil sort of says, it's kind of it's an evolving picture. I think, you know, they're starting to work better together. But I think really, for me, the consumer duty is really the only game in town for how you drive to better consumer outcomes. And so it's really important that TPR are, are kind of aligned with that, even though it's an FCA piece of work.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think mostly they do, they do compare notes and they do kind of work together. Certainly better than they used to. I was interested to see the Work and Pensions Committee this week unveiling a new inquiry on really on DB pension provision, which is probably not what we're focusing on here. But I was interested they're asking about the quality of trustee boards, about governance, about consolidation. So I'd be interested to get your thoughts both on on that question of we've still got an awful lot of pensions in the UK, right? So, So I guess the question is like, would we benefit from consolidation? Should we have Fewer, bigger pension schemes, and if so, how are we going to get there? Is the value for money framework going to push us in that direction? I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that.
1: It's definitely um, something that the, the DWP are quite focused on, and, and they have been through a couple of different pension ministers. That consolidation is probably desirable. The, the interesting part of that is if you look at if you look at the value for money framework, and you went to any of the FCA and TPR roundtables and webinars on this it's quite clear that, that let's say you end up in a position of, of not being able to de- demonstrate value for money and that happens again and maybe happens again. That there's sort of a, a, a three times and we're going to make you consolidate kind of message behind all of that. I think if you, if you line that up alongside small pots, then you start seeing more consolidation as well. So it, it, it's almost inevitable that we need consolidation. And in, in all of these different consultations, bigger scale, well-managed, well-governed schemes can actually deliver the things that the regulators are looking for. So it it, it feels like the right direction of travel for me. You'd agree with that, Nathan?
2: Yeah, completely. I mean, there are far too many pensions. How on earth can they be properly supervised how, how on earth can you have the the oversight all, over all of those it's just it's just far too there's far too much going on so I completely agree with that.
0: Well I mean in addition I think some of the smaller ones are just under resourced to actually do an effective job for their members and this drive towards greater trustee professionalism you know you need resources to do that you need to do you need resources to do the job comprehensively and I think that's a factor in all of that. Small pots then. So that feels like another one that's just been going on for decades, right? Or well, certainly yeah. since the early early days of auto-enrollment. And we've been round the houses and round again. And Steve Webb started on it and Ros Altman shut it down. But the problem never went away. And now we're back again. And we've had two working group reports on it, I think, from, from Andy Cheseldine and his group. And now we've had a consultation paper from the DWP. So... What's the
1: answer, guys? <laughs> I think if we knew the answer, we wouldn't be on another round of consultation. <laughs> um, so that, that's the flippant response. I think, I think the, the, the real response is it's, it's, a, it's a challenging issue. And, and actually, how you, how you define the right solution can be either market changing or market distorting if it's not done carefully. So we need to think hard about what, what problem we're trying to solve, why we're trying to solve it. And then, what is the best mechanism in in the member consumer's interest for doing that? And actually, you can't look at small pots in isolation anymore. So, if you if you if you think about just if we go wind back a second, you think about micro pots. That's the real big problem. That's the over four million pots around the market with a hundred pounds or less in them, and that needs dealing with quickly because that they're just not efficient for the market to deal with. They're not going to produce meaningful pensions and consolidating those where we can into another pension is the right thing to do. That's not consoli- just giving
0: them out as a refund
1: then? Well, I mean, they closed that down in the consultation document again, didn't they? Saying that, that, that short service refunds or, or whatever, however you want to describe them, it's not consistent with the auto-enrollment policy because auto-enrollment does have this inherent challenge that it, that it can build up lots of small pots. So that's if what they you said s- in the consultation. Do you agree with them? No, I, I agree that, that, that there's a challenge in doing this. There's some very specific circumstances where I think one should be allowed to refund the money. And if you think about how, how hard the auto-enrollment mechanism is, so people who don't communicate quickly enough that they want to opt out and you get a single contribution caused in a pension – you know, it should be right to refund that. And, and it's proper to give the money back to the member because they didn't intend to put it in a pension. And that also happens when you get the triennial review, where you re-enroll people. So so I think those are very specific circumstances where we should be a bit more forgiving of the member. But actually, these pensions do build up quicker and, and, and actually plugging them together is better for the member. So very specific circumstances, I can see how you do it. But a general allowing of short service refunds I can totally rationalise why the DWP don't like that, and I can understand it. I, I'm, I remember a world in which those were, were were commonplace, and actually, with certain occupations, you end up giving a continuous stream of refunds, and the person never builds up a pension.
0: Okay, and I think you so sorry Nathan, I think you can probably make a case, perhaps,
1: for small pots from overseas workers. Who? Yeah, indeed. So that there is. We've got historically a degree of pots that have been built up where you had let's describe them as migrant workers. So people who came to the UK, they may be fruit picking for the summer and then they go back to their to their home nation after the summer and they've got money caught in the system. And, and again, that's another area where you look at it and go that they they probably didn't intend to come to the UK and start a pension. So yeah, there's these little pockets that we can find. No,
0: Nathan, I going to come to you in a second, but before, before we
1: go there, Philip, just of the two options then,
0: Portfolios Member, Consolidator, what are your thoughts around those?
1: I think Consolidator has a lot of merit, but it needs an S on the end. It's got to be plural and you've got to hold some, some high regulatory standards in place. So who can be consolidators and what consolidators can and can't do. And I say that because money moving between consolidators needs to be in an environment that's relatively protected for the member because it's going to be moving kind of without consent when you move it around. Portfolio's member back in 2015, I think it was 1415. I, I Kind of got the mechanism, and I remember the underground map with Bank Station being the big central hub in the middle that deals with all of this. But there's some aspects of PotFollows Member which are, are no longer consistent with other policies in the market. If you want illiquids to be held in schemes, and you want them to be held, if you hear the, the, the kind of the current noise in the market, to particular levels of, of assets held in schemes, there's a challenge there with PotFollows Member that you're going to need a consistent liquidity pool to keep paying money into schemes that are moving backwards and forwards. So that's not quite consistent with allowing big infrastructure investment. The consumer side of that is, I don't think anyone sat down and said, if this person moves jobs 11 times, 12 times or more, how much out-of-market time do they get and what is the effect at the end of the the, the cycle when they get to their retirement outcome Is it better or worse and how detrimental was it to lose X number of months when aggregated over a period of years to be out of the market and not actually having kind of the asset taking risk because it was moving backwards and forwards? Plus the frictional costs of moving the money around the system. The, the frictional costs just go up, and you know, let's be honest, they're not cheap at the moment. So they potentially get worse.
2: Nathan. Yeah, look, I mean, I agree. For me, it's. I mean, I can't believe the transaction cost element of this isn't isn't more of a, a topic of discussion because it's very it's very hard to be agitated about that. I don't think it's in the
0: consultation paper at all.
2: For me, this is one of the biggest issues. You're literally driving additional costs into members who could otherwise keep their money there. And I think, you know, we started to sort of unpack this at the beginning. What's the point in consolidating pensions? To be honest, I think the main thing is it's about individuals having a connection with their pension savings. And I think the biggest benefit to a lot of people is that they have then a clear decision-making process when they come to retirement so actually there's an interesting question for me as to when is best to start that consolidation so i i get that we should have this sweeper but actually the key for me is and the the, the real benefit is that rather than having at the moment people have multiple pensions when they come to retirement and what they start doing is going well I don't really know. I've got all these pensions, so I'm just going to take a little bit from... I, I've got this one that's a couple of grand, so I'll just have that paid back to me as cash. If all of those m- pensions were sort of added together and in one pot, they would make decisions about their retirement from that pot. They wouldn't take little admin decisions of, that's a bit of a pain, I've got this small amount of money, I'll just get it paid back to me now. And I, So I think that, that there is just a coherence in terms of the decision-making when you come to retirement with a consolidated pot, which is really, really... I think, the main benefit of doing all of this piece of consolidation. So in terms of the best solution, that for me, I think that the consolidator route is interesting for trying to sweep up those, those micro pots that we sort of touched on earlier. But I don't think you can do any of this in, in isolation. I, we think that having the opportunity to hang on to a lifetime pot is incredibly important for driving that connection with pension saving, for helping drive that engagement, for building that that consistency of journey as you move into retirement. So what that means is, if I leave one employer and go to another and then say, I've joined your your workplace, but I've already got this pension from my last employer, I want the money that you're gonna put into my pension here to be redirected and just put into my existing pension because I've already got the login, I've already chosen my investments within that, I'm comfortable with how that all works and I've got my planning side of that. I should be able to do that and that shouldn't be on beyond the realms of possibility in the kind of tech-enabled world that we we work in. Now, that's obviously not where we are now, but if we're giving people individual responsibility to manage their money into retirement, we need to give them the ability to do that, not just talk about it. And I think that would be a really positive step forward. That doesn't solve small parts in its entirety, but it is a useful additional mechanism to add to drive this whole improvement in sort of planning on the way through to retirement,
0: And that could be used in conjunction with
2: consolidators, one or more.
0: But but this was the Anthony Brown private member's bill that was brought forward, which was to do exactly that and then got withdrawn at the second reading only a few days ago. So, I mean, clearly there are and he's he's on the treasury committee there are people within government who are within parliament sorry who are thinking along these lines but it wasn't that that solution you described wasn't even consulted
1: on in the dwp paper I mean, philip would, would would that work yeah. so well, well it's a really interesting question and 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 philosophically pot for life makes a huge amount of sense i think if you look at the anthony brown version of pot for member where he effectively said Why don't we just open up this workplace market to the entire universe of pensions? I'm not sure that's a good idea because I don't think your average retail customer is actually equipped to make a choice between the different solutions available, what value they're adding, what the costs are, what the investment solutions are, whether those are right. Yeah. And and it's doing it in a controlled way that's absolutely necessary. So what he suggested, I totally understand why it was withdrawn because it, it lacked control. If you find a way of doing it that allows you to, to actually have all the pipe work in place that moves the money around the system and reduces all of that frictional cost, then it has merit. But, that, but it has merit in a way that Portfolio's member doesn't, because Portfolio's member just continuously moves the stuff around between providers.
0: Okay, so I looked at this and thought, well, logically, from, a, from an individual's point of view, why would you not just have a single consolidator? It's simpler, it's cleaner, it's more predictable, you know where the money's going. Are you arguing for
1: multiple consolidators just from a commercial competition point of view? Well, well, no, it's, I don't think it's as straightforward as that. Because if you... So anyone who works in, in the, the workplace market, if you set up a single consolidator, you would have an immediate flow of assets into that consolidator, which probably runs to many billions and when you add up the small pots that are out there, now the the challenge for me is that if if you're actually in that workplace market and you're an employer, you're going to say, look, well, when when my employees leave and they all do this at some point, their money's going to end up in the consolidator. So why don't we just make the consolidator our pension? And you start restricting competition in the market, you effectively end up with a. a preferred solution because that's where my money's going to end up anyway and i think that's market distorting rather than 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 enabling
2: okay fair enough nathan yeah i think i I think that's a fair comment i just think so there are obviously this has to be thought through in terms of the controls i think i prefer a single consolidator just because it's easier for the end individual i.e if i haven't looked at this at all until i get to the age of 45 I know that all of those micro pots will have been tossed into this one provider, and I can just go and pick them out and bring them back into the pension plan mm-hmm. that I plan to use for retirement. So I think there's, I think from a consumer perspective, that makes things easier. But I, I definitely get the point around who is that consolidator? What are the controls that are in place around that? I think if the problem then is if you have multiple consolidators, what's the mechanism for picking that consolidator? To a certain extent, we're dealing with a group of people who are incredibly inert because they haven't got the connection with that money. You are going to need a default of some description. You can't rely on individuals to make that decision of which consolidator, I don't think.
0: But you could use a sort of taxi-rank carousel kind of solution, couldn't you?
2: Potentially. But again,
0: I mean you have have a a menu of consolidators who've all passed a test,
1: and you know, just the next one at the front of the queue gets the next pot. There's a way of doing that without the individual having to heavily engage as well, isn't it? Surely, surely you could, you'd go, look, there's six pots belonging to this individual in the market. There's four consolidators, and that consolidator's already got the biggest pile of assets, so let's just move it all there. So yeah. there's, there's there's different ways of doing this, but you're, you know, the carousel mechanism works. Australia did it by saying, look, we're just going to staple you to the pension you're in today, and then we'll start squirting all the assets towards that pension, so there's a variety of different ways of doing this, and I think what we've got to do is is find a way that that doesn't mean the individuals got to make choice and quickly on something they may they may not have the knowledge or skill to do, and at the moment in a vacuum where there isn't a value for money metric that would help them go oh that one's a decent one. Okay.
0: All good thoughts. was two, two other things I want to touch on, and I'm conscious we don't want to impose excessively on the patience of our, our listeners here. So, so while we've still got time, two, two things I want to pick up on. One is CDC. I and mean, in particular, CDC for decumulation, because we talked a bit about decumulation earlier on. So there's always that question of how do we, how do we transition people from the accumulation phase, which kind of works a bit, into to decumulation is. Is CDC
1: a viable solution to that at all? Well, it's—I mean—it's something we we watch with interest, and I think using it in a retirement context does make sense. But it's it's one of those interesting things where the devil's in the detail, right? So we've got a, we've got this consultation going on at the moment. It, it's the actual in practice administration of the mechanism where some of the challenge lies, and. I can understand how one looks at it and goes, if we're transitioning assets into retirement and we we can actually maintain assets in the market in a different way and therefore produce better returns for the members, that, that's all well and good. But just consider the last few years, how many one in 200-year events have we had in the last few years? That's, that's rhetorical. There's it's definitely more than one. And if we get into an environment where you have to start reducing income that's a pretty tough message because when you told them they're going to get better income for being in this pooled solution they're not going to remember that 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 wasn't always going to be a guarantee
0: right remember yeah. communication around that is absolutely critical yeah nathan
2: my biggest issue with cdc is that it kind of work, might work in theory but behaviorally what's the impact and how people are going to interact and i think that's the bit that understandably we don't know but probably needs a bit more thought. So when when CDC was kind of originally being debated heavily as a full full scheme solution, almost a DB replacement, I looked at quite a lot of the modelling that had been put together by various bodies. What was very clear to me is that it assumes that everyone starts in the pension, continues in the pension, retires in the pension. And actually it misses a key piece of client behaviour around whether people actually want to transfer out And why they might look to do that. And the two obvious ones for me are, if people have got bigger assets built up within that scheme, they might think that they want to have that back under their own control to have a little bit more clarity around how that's used. And those people who are in ill health, or at least have a perception of being in ill health, are likely to want to not have that money retained in the scheme and have it under their own control. And the problem you get is if people who are in ill health start to move their money out, you lose the mortality cross subsidy of the scheme or you at least dilute it. And so it's not as effective a solution as as currently as being stated. And I think the problem is it's very hard to model that behavior, but absolutely that's going to be the reality of the situation for many, many people who go through that process. When you, Come to talk about the at retirement solution. If I look at this from a, an advisory perspective, so when I used to advise clients, I'd absolutely want something like that as an option. So I think there's a big, there's a big opportunity to have, in the same way that you have a diversified accumulation strategy, it's probably sensible to have a diversified decumulation strategy. So a little bit of annuity, a bit of drawdown. Why not potentially a little bit of retirement CDC within that? But think if I was Advising clients, I'd absolutely be keen to explore that opportunity and to understand that. The thing that strikes me most, though, is we kind of have something similar to this already. It's called a with-profits annuity, and they're not very popular because people won't buy them. And then the problem you have then is if people are unlikely to buy something that's already similar that exists in the market... Are they likely to buy this product? I would argue probably not if you had CDC for retirement. And so the only way that you kind of get mass scale is if if you can default people into the strategy. And I don't think you can default people into a retirement strategy, which kind of sets their death benefit straight away. So I think whilst I'm quite interested in the opportunity for a diversified strategy in retirement, I'm not sure you're going to get huge numbers of people buying it, and I think there are still, again, some behavioural challenges to how successful the adoption of this might be.
0: Yeah, you make some really interesting points there, um, and I found the concept of CDC for the accumulation really appealing for those people who are below the advice threshold, so they've not got the sort of half a million upwards that typically a financial advisor is interested in, so they might have low six-figure sum money, maybe even five-figure sum money, they don't want to commit to an annuity now. They want to stay in the market. They want some, some income. They just don't know how to manage it. You know, it's just too complicated for them. I mean, it, is, it is a complicated thing, so that's fine. So where do they go? What home do they? is an offer to them? And the CDC potentially, I think, is a really good home for them. But you do bump up against a number of issues around communication, around the death benefits, around sort of reverse underwriting for anyone wants to transfer out. So I, I, I don't dismiss the kind of the points you make around all of that. I'd kind of like to see it work because because there's a big hole there, as Philip highlighted earlier on, that problem of how we how we get the money back out again hasn't really been solved yet.
1: Yeah, Tom, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that, and I think there's work going on in the market now looking at how you get people transitioning from that, that saving phase into actually I need to turn this into an income and, and what's the best way to do that and is, is it as as simple as saying well, well on day one of retirement you should have an, an annuity underpin or do I put that at an age 75 or 76 or what's the optimum age to do that but you're getting into complexities where the individual's got to make choices so actually designing a solution that has those complexities built into it in, in the same way, a default fund has sort of an asset allocation, a member outcome built into the design. I, th- I think there's, there's some merit in doing that. You don't need CDC to do that. And I, I was sat here, as Nathan was speaking with my former regulator hat on, that, that the moment you start comparing something to with profits, you could just hear people in Stratford taking sharp intakes of breath because they don't really want to go there again. Okay, look, so
0: it looks like we're in danger of getting some auto-enrolment reforms coming through. We've got a, a bill that the government's supporting that will lower the minimum age, that will remove the lower earnings limit in terms of contributions, widely welcomed across the industry. No timing on it yet, so we still don't know when they're actually going to do it. But I, but I get the sense from talking to people that the government is quite keen to push ahead with this. Perhaps you know, they see it as... Get it on the books now, even if it doesn't kick in until after the general election, because then they can point to it as a win. So a couple of questions around this, you know, jump in either of you. So to what extent is this actually going to solve the adequacy problem? And also, I think just as importantly, what does it do for the self-employed who seem to be persistently missed in all of
1: this? So Tom, that's a a really important question. You're right. These are enabling powers. It's not actually implementing the power. And the minister has made absolutely the right noises about, about getting this done. It's just a question of when. And even the prime minister stood up and said this will be implemented now. They just haven't given the time frame. But in terms of adequacy, this is widening coverage for some people, as in starting at an earlier age, and actually getting more contribution in by reducing kind of earnings triggers. So it's going some way to start solving that problem but as has been demonstrated in research the People's Partnership have done, research the DWP's done, research the PLSA's done, that's still not going to necessarily produce you an adequate pension. We've still got to look hard at the contribution rates, how those contribution rates are split between employer and employee. I'm not saying we should do this today because we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. It's something we have to plan for, and we need to work out and get the consensus around to get it moving in future. And and you're right, it's disappointing to see the the self-employed left on the the sideline again. And and there's some real challenges. They're not a homogenous group of people, but that doesn't mean we can't actually think about mechanisms to use to get them into pensions. I mean, we used to have a lot of self-employed people in pensions, and that slowly declined potentially because of changes in pension rules, because of the, a lower number of, of direct sales advisors in the market. There's a variety of reasons why that's happened, but we need to face into it and deal with it because millions of people are not being well served at the moment that just need a
2: solution given to them. This is an area that we're really, we're really keen on broadly, the the whole development of this policy. So back in the middle of last year, we conducted some analysis through our Savings and Resilience Barometer, which we basically rather, rather ambitiously tries to measure financial resilience across the nation at a household level. That's done in conjunction with Oxford Economics. So we actually analysed the impact of these government changes. So what you find is that you we sort of ran it after five years from implementation. We assume that that happened not now, but in a, in a couple of years' time. Actually, that does improve people's adequacy, but only an increase of about 3.5% for the nation as a whole, for some of the reasons that Phil mentioned there. But it has a much, much bigger benefit for those lower-income households, increases their adequacy right by around 15%. So there's some positive things for this coming in. The problem here, and this is something that I think the pension industry, unfortunately, is quite blinkered on, because they're very bothered by pension adequacy. They miss the more holistic nature of financial resilience. And so whilst that is, it does deliver improvements, you absolutely destroy people's short-term resilience. So where you look at their surplus income, their emergency savings, any additional assets that they have built up, which of course are very, very important for people who are a little bit younger and not on the housing ladder, they all get smashed with the introduction of this policy. And it gets even worse if you start thinking about increasing contribution rates further from where they are. So, where next for to enrollment contributions we're we're comfortable with the changes that are coming in now. We think they're sensible to bring in from eighteen that makes a lot of sense and to to allow from the first pound of earnings. Where we think that the government should focus thereafter is look at the impact of the behavioral impact of offering matching contributions through the employer. Analysis that we've done at h l previously found that as many as six in 10 people would voluntarily increase their contributions if their employer offered matching contributions through the workforce. Now, that was done before the latest round of increase in auto-enrolment minimums. So we've been vocal in calling for the DWP to do some analysis in this work, work out what the impact of this is, because there then is a mechanism where you start to encourage employers to voluntarily offer this matching on top, and then you can start to sort of get people to increase the contributions. And the benefit is then you don't do it to everyone. So those people who would be really badly affected by a, an increase in contributions, who it might not be right for, don't have to suffer that short-term hit to their resilience. But at the same time, you don't br- and you don't bring in that at cost for employers across the board, which again might be quite tough when they might be sort of struggling as well. So some thoughts there on the employee side. On the self-employed, I think... This area is absolutely fascinating. The narrative is all around the self-employed have given up on pension saving. Well, that is true to a certain extent, although it's which self-employed do you mean? Because if you look at their data, basically higher rate taxpayers are still kind of using pensions. So it's actually working quite well for fairly wealthy self-employed people. It's basic rate taxpayers who aren't really using pensions. And I would argue that they shouldn't do anyway because a lifetime ISA is likely to be a better option for them to save into if they are of an age where they can take that that option up. And the other thing, and this comes from some of our analysis that that I talked about there, we looked at the rate, the house, the self-employed are kind of preparing for retirement. And whilst they are less likely to have got money saved into a pension, they are more likely to be investing and they're more likely to have a second property, and to have larger wealth, larger equity stake in their existing home because they've saved and invested elsewhere. So I think, again, we just need to think about this holistically and say, whilst our default in the workplace world is to say people should be saving into pensions, that might not be the case for the self-employed where currently the lisa is better for a certain group of people. We need to understand where those people are naturally preferring to to save and invest for the future and look at that adequacy side of it so if you if you want to take that into a sort of policy discussion I think there is massive opportunity to extend the age at which you can take out a lifetime ISA and pay into a lifetime ISA and there's an interesting thing for me as to whether if you're self-employed and you have to access money from a lifetime ISA you suffer only the 20% penalty, i.e. the clawback of your bonus that's given by from, by the government, rather than the full 25% penalty as is imposed currently, to kind of encourage self-employed people who do have vulnerable, uh, sort of variable income streams to be more likely to commit that money for the future. So that's some kind of thoughts on the self employed.
1: So Tom, I'm just going to say that Nathan's explaining in much more detail, much more eloquently, what I meant by they're not a homogenous group of people. <laughs>
0: Okay. Thanks for that. And look, I just, I wanted to come back to you, Philip, on one thing Nathan said earlier in his response, which was around the matching contributions, because you've got the kind of workplace perspective, you deal with a lot of employers. What are your thoughts around that, the idea of kind of going down the matching route and sort of incentivizing and tailoring the mechanisms to encourage people to put more money in? Do you think there's mileage in that?
1: Yeah. So our, our experience is, is the same as Nathan's describing. So where employers provide matching contributions. Employees voluntarily pay more in, and we actually produce a, a toolkit that allows them to to actually talk to their employees about this if they want to commit to doing that sort of thing. The challenge is it doesn't happen on a very wide scale. So when you start getting down to medium and smaller enterprises, it, it's just not even considered. So it generally happens in, in larger, more paternalistic employers. So the mechanism works. I'm just not sure it would work in,
2: in smaller employers. I think you're right at the moment. But the, I think this is the challenge for the industry and for the government. How can we encourage more employers to to adopt that? So actually, we're just about to launch a pilot scheme in Bristol, which is all around bringing together employers in the local Bristol area to try and drive financial resilience amongst their, their workers. And actually one of the, so we have multiple sort of items that we think are kind of hygiene factors of, look, if you sign up to this, this is the kind of standards that you need to be working towards, one of which is that you facilitate or sort of incentivise contributions of at least 12%. Now, it's really interesting that whilst a lot of employers are looking at that going, crikey, I can't afford that at the moment, they also hadn't really ever thought that that was the case. So again, when you've got that convening power that we're starting to build in the Bristol area, where you sort of say, actually, this is quite important, have a think about how you can get people to that level it starts to put it on the agenda and it starts to get employers to think about it. And for me, you're absolutely right, Phil. The, the benefit here for us doing this work locally is I want to drag these small and medium-sized employers who don't have the benefit of having an employee benefits consultant work with them on a daily basis to try and start to implement those into their into how they, they help their staff. So, it, yeah, it's not easy, but I think there's definitely things that employer groups alongside the industry can do to try and encourage that that voluntary take-up, because I think the problem is if the industry focuses forever and a day on increasing the minimum auto-enrolment contributions, we could be waiting an awfully long time, and that's an awfully large number of people who are going to be missing out on saving at the right level for retirement.
0: Interesting thoughts. Thanks for that. Okay, look, guys, the thing that strikes me from this conversation is how much unfinished business there is. We've got a general election coming up in less than two years now. So I think there's a really interesting issue. You talked a lot about the government. I think for anyone that wants to run the country from 2025 onwards, you know, whether it's the Conservative Party or, or Labour, you know, it really feels like it would be great to see these kind of issues being surfaced, certainly in some of their, their manifesto <laughs> commitments and their political thinking going into that general election. And we'll leave it there. So, Philip, Nathan, thank you both very much for, for your thoughts this morning.
1: A pleasure, Tom, Anytime. Thanks, Tom.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.